Golden Spiral Media presents Dark Matter, a fan podcast dedicated to Extant on CBS. Each week, Mike and Dave explore the mysteries, characters, and drama that unfold on Extant, and they want to hear from you too. Send in your thoughts by calling 304-837-2278 or visiting goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback. Now, here are your hosts, Mike and Dave. Hello, we're glad you could join us for this installment of Dark Matter, an extant podcast. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is show number 10, where we'll be talking about season one, episode 12 of the CBS summer event series, Extant. This episode is entitled Before the Blood, and it aired on September 10th, 2014. And Before the Blood was written by Peter Ako, who I think did a great job with this episode. He also wrote 105, What on Earth is Wrong, I guess is what it was called. And this one was also directed by David Solomon, who I looked him up. He's best known for some Whedon shows, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Dollhouse, which I thought was funny considering how prominent Enver Jokai was in this one. <laughs> All right. Now, when you talk about Peter Ako, that this was good, what he, I, and I think by good you mean that he's going to have to produce a three-hour season finale? <laughs> well, or? I think Mickey Fisher wrote the finale. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, but Peter Ako, just, I have to say, I mean, this episode had such good dialogue, specifically the dialogue, but in general. But I, I really liked the conversations between Molly and John and the chemistry between Sean Glass and Katie. Well, yeah, and, and to be quite honest, even the glances, even the some of the looks that Ethan gave to Julie, to his father. Well, that's to, acting, to, though. <laughs> to Odin. Well, I understand that, but but still, it's direction. Yeah. And, well, Peter Ako wrote it, but so right. da- you're saying David Solomon also deserves a bit of a yes kudos on this one. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's it's good all the way around, and and what a great penultimate episode to have. And we always talk about how that second to last episode of the season is always one of the best, and this one is no exception. But I have to say the late hour that this one got started because of Obama's speech. I didn't get to watch it live, didn't get to do the live tweet, and I'm sure the live tweet must have been very exciting for this one. I'm kind of sorry I missed it. But the 10 o'clock hour is as tough as it is, and, and then this one was even later. But another thing that deals with schedule, Dave, is that we are going to be finishing up Extant, and we want to make sure some of our listeners maybe follow us to the next one, which is our Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast known as the sandbox. And so I just want to mention our social networks. Hail Hydra. <laughs> oh God. And in case you want to keep tabs on what's going on with our podcast, our Twitter handle is at shield underscore GSM. And our Facebook page, uh, just search for the sandbox and you'll find it there on Facebook. And we have a Facebook group instead of a Facebook page so that we can have some ongoing conversations with our listeners and anyone can contribute pretty much anything and hopefully you'll join us there yeah we're really looking forward to that um now speaking of looking forward to i'm not sure we have a season two of extant to look forward to uh, for a lot of different reasons but the ratings took really the the first big hit of the season i mean it's really been hovering around that 5.5 5.7 million viewers week in and week out and for the first time it dropped down to 4.64 a 0.8 share which is really the first time it's been under one like you mentioned about the penultimate episode that we're going to talk about tonight i have no idea how they're going to be able to wrap up this show in one episode i honestly don't so i i figure they'll probably leave us a little bit of a cliffhanger that just can be left to open to our imagination, but I just hope it's satisfying. You know what I'm saying? I do. So there can be a little bit left, but hopefully not too much left hanging out there. But yeah, unfortunately, that's a 13% drop. So I don't think we have too much to look forward to, but I would love to be proven wrong, right? Yeah, sure. And we'll just have to wait and see. But let's go ahead and get into it. Since this is such a great episode to discuss, we'll start our Dark Matter episode discussion. Dark 
All right. Now, you know, one of the first things that that we probably need to address is Molly. And we see her in, in several different story arcs in this episode. But, you know, that whole idea about what it is she did to Seraphim Station to cause it to go out of its predicted orbit. And, you know, we subsequently find out that it's headed towards Earth and it's basically going to burn up if something's not done. And we go back to that that scene where she's entering codes, but we don't know why or what the codes are for. And Well, I'm just glad they brought it back up again, because I think I mentioned in the last week's discussion that I was kind of wondering why she didn't mention that part of her dream to Kern. I was like, why didn't she mention that whole part about entering the codes? And now it becomes hugely important in this episode. So it, it definitely came to the forefront right away. Yeah, because it wasn't a dream. That's right. <laughs> and and again, then I guess we're to understand that the offspring prompted her to do that. I guess since we'd later see the virtual world he put her in with her father, that's very similar to the one that she was put into with Marcus and the baby. So... It almost seems to be implied that it really is just as real as anything. And there's a couple of different instances in this episode where it's mentioned, you know, who I think Sam says, who am I to say what is real and what's not real? Yeah. And, and even the idea about machine versus human, that, that little conversation that Julie has with Ethan about it's not about what you are. It's, it's whether or not you can love and in return be loved. So this show has started to turn from being about what it means to be alive and it's starting to become about what it means to be real. Yeah. And not real. <laughs> well, obviously the comsat is down and we see Sean up on Seraphim and you know that's the first indication we get that something's wrong because he can't make communication contact with Earth. So there's going to be a rescue mission to the Aruna to get Sean. I mean, is that I mean, there was so much going on. Here. Well, of course, they didn't really know that anybody other than Sean needed rescuing. But I think the key here is another loose thread that was hanging from last week. And that is, how come Sparks just went to ISEA, got himself captured, and then shot his way out? What was the purpose of that? And here we get to see that there is a purpose. He used his two minutes of escape after he killed that guard to log in and do something. And Ryan Jackson, the acting director, discovers that it's because... He had sent the whole ComSat system into a systems check, and they had to just wait before they could use it. So it was kind of a clever little device to cause a delay, and I guess Sparks was just making it so that they couldn't do anything about what Molly had been forced to do. Right, so are we to just understand that Sparks doesn't know what he's doing or why he's doing, and he was just told to do it? Yeah, blindly okay. following instructions from the instrument of having brought his daughter back. He, he, he feels he owes the offspring, I guess. Yeah, and from an emotional, psychological, he's a mess. I mean, you see him in that room and... Well, Ryan's I, saying he's sleeping and he just killed a man. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of state he's in. Yeah, but, and again, it's just this, this blind devotion to this entity that, okay, I get it. It gave him his daughter back. Real or not real, but I don't know. You'd think somebody with his level of, uh, I, I guess, awareness as to what's out there, he could see beyond that and, and, and at least be skeptical. I mean, Molly's gotten to the point now where she knows you're not real. I'm yeah. not listening to you anymore. Right. He He's gotten almost to a religious state here yes. when, when uh, he's talking about, we all deserve a chance to be whole again. We all deserve that. He's saying like the entire human race deserves to live forever. Yeah. I mean, or is, the, or is he talking about the ability to bring the, his loved one back? Yeah. Uh, and either way, <laughs> again, you look at the consequences. I mean, it sounds good in theory. But then you'd have overpopulation. You'd have, you know, probably some inequality, people trying to get the privilege for themselves and, keeping it from others, that sort of thing. Yeah, and think of the poor guy that got remarried after his first wife died. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really like Ryan Jackson, though. I, I really do have to say his character, I, I wish we had seen him earlier. 
Yeah, really. It would have been nice to have him at least mentioned so we could bring him back and understand why he was there. Yeah, and you talk about the good lines in in this episode. That that was one of my favorite when he's like, you know, well, you know, didn't you think about what was out there? Didn't you think about UFOs? And she's like, think about them. I wanted to drive them. <laughs> That's right. Well, that was a, yeah, that was an interesting part because he actually almost seemed excited about having made alien contact because he just has found out about this in the last day. And it was kind of a weird reaction for him to be excited about it. But yeah, that that line from Molly was pretty cool. Right. Rather than be terrified, uh, frightened, uh, unsure of what to do to get things under control. Yeah, I agree with you. (laughs) But, you know, you got to take time to absorb the wonder of experiencing another life form like that, I guess. Right. Now, I like the fact that she figures out that it was 19 hours ago and which was when she was at the cabin and, you know, she, she figures that it was her that typed in the codes. Uh, you know, we mentioned about who it is that's controlling her, whether or not it's the offspring. And, and, you know, later on when we, when we see the offspring and hear from the offspring, it's almost as if there's something controlling it. Yeah. And that's a good point because didn't it seem to you as though sparks gave her the instructions when she was in the dream state rather than the offspring? It, it did to me, but what put her in that dream state? The, well, I think the offspring did. So then it becomes a question of whether or not the offspring is following the instructions from Sparks and his wife, or whether he's following instructions from the aliens in space, because he never specifies who they are, at least at the beginning of his speech, and we'll talk about him later, but... But there's a little bit of confusion as to whether or not Sparks was unknowingly calling the shots, especially with regard to Molly punching in new coordinates, because how would the offspring know necessarily? Right. Now, trying to get to the bottom of who's controlling who, you know, we do at least have Sam trying to help Molly recapture these memories and and, uh, injects her with uh, a memory brightener. I I like that. Yeah. And I can't exactly put it in your ass. Yeah. So sorry <laughs> yeah. about that, Molly. <laughs> but so this is supposed to enhance her memory. And it, and it what it looked like was that, you know, Molly was getting focused and was starting to remember things even before Sam injected her. Well, because Sam said you have to focus on the memory that you want to be clarified. Right. And yeah, you're right. It, she was almost there on her own. She, she almost didn't need the injection. But I guess the key that the medicine provided was the ability to write down each and every character because it was almost like a code that she had to feed to Ben later. Right, right. And she hears Ben's voice telling her to enter the access codes. And I wasn't sure what to make of that. Well, in the original dream, in the original dream sequence, it was Ben's voice doing that where she, it looked like she was entering it into the incubator. And I think that was our clue as an audience to know that it had something to do with the Seraphim when we heard Ben's voice. So yeah, Ben's voice was here, and it also was in the original uh, dream sequence two episodes ago. So then do we trust Ben? Who's controlling Ben? Well, I think it's just Ben's voice okay. being used as an illusion by the offspring or whoever <laughs> whoever's doing this. Right. Um, and now you already mentioned, you know, when, when she comes out of it and, and so like, give me something to write with, and she starts writing down what she's still visualizing. And then, like you said, that that thing that Sam says to her about, you know, who's to say what's real. Yeah. If you say you held your baby, then you held your baby. And and that's true to a certain extent. Molly's trying to get someone to believe her, especially in her conversations with John. John's not buying it anymore. So it's nice to have a sympathetic ear from Sam. Right. And we find out that the, the code, because you couldn't adjust the trajectory, you couldn't adjust the flight path remotely but what yeah they, i love that wasn't that a good detail oh it was it's like you you want to always say that's not realistic but here they give you this explanation of course it's not realistic that she would have been able to move the whole station from the earth but it gives them a little mystery to solve how did she do it then how did she set it off course yeah you send a, an alert that there's an asteroid and it'll move itself yeah yeah and It's interesting to me, though, and this is just my little nitpick, I guess, that if there was a protocol in place for it to void an asteroid, then there also should have been a protocol for it to get back on course Mm -hmm. after after it did the avoiding, you know? Right. Rather than staying off course. That seems like poor planning. (laughs) Right. Now, I loved when Molly went in to confront Spark. She's got her iPad there. She shows him the video footage 
of Katie alive after being rescued by the French team and it tells him the Seraphim's falling out of orbit. It's going to come crashing to Earth. It's going to disintegrate. Everybody's going to die, including Katie, who's on it. You need to do something. And then, you know, it's like he tells her that, well, they told me I needed to do it. They said it was necessary. Or, I'm sorry. He said it was necessary. Again, we assume. The offspring. The offspring. Please save my daughter. Yeah. He, he just like them, believes that he'd been duped and that Katie had been alive this whole time. And we thought the same thing. I mean, all along, we're thinking this is Katie. She was floating out in space and here she is returned. And this kind of debunks the whole Katie being brought to life back down on earth. So Sparks is completely dejected and and feels that, okay, now I will help you in any way I can. Right. Right. And obviously the one thing that needs to be done, and I think we all really could sense this was coming. But then when Ryan Jackson actually asks Molly to go back into space, because you're really the only one that can figure this out, she's reluctant. And and I guess the only reason she's reluctant is because of what's been going on with her family and the fact that John and Ethan really don't want her to go. I mean, is it anything more than that? No, I think you're exactly right. She is reacting to the difficulties that she's had with John, especially but yeah, with Ethan as well. So I think she's feeling a little bit guilty. Does she really want to go? I don't know, because later on when she definitely tells John, I have to go, it's because of outside influences, not because she actually wanted to. Well, you know, it's funny. It's almost as if he tells her to go. Well, sarcastically, I think, though. Um, you know, I, I know what you mean. But again, it's very telling. He, you know, he tells her, look, I didn't expect you to forget about Marcus and the past. I just didn't expect that you were going to see him again. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That argument that they had, so well written, the dialogue of that one. And uh, we'll get to their conversation, Molly and John, but the two people that had the best chemistry um, besides Molly and John, because, you know, they've never had chemistry at all throughout the series, but the conversation, the argument they had was so good. But what's so weird is that Katie and Sean Glass on the Seraphim They've only been around for one episode. We've seen Sean off and on. Sure. But how quickly they had chemistry and we as an audience were going, hey, I like these two. Right. And we even find out that they really never had much of a chance to develop any chemistry, you know, when they were together because I guess there was that kiss and then, no, my father runs the program, so no. Well, but but at the same time, Katie knew that Sean had a thing for her. Oh, oh absolutely. But it's still knowing he had a thing and then having developing, they never even got to develop it. So, so just a few light moments, uh, some joking going on. That's what, what I really liked about it. But the, the interesting thing is the whole episode opens with Katie saying, I don't feel like myself. And so when you, when you watch it a second time, you're like, well, I guess knowing what I know now, you're not yourself. Right, right. And and that was perfect. But, you know, we kind of sensed it. I mean, we already knew that the possibility of this entity inhabiting a body was was, was likely to happen. But, you know, she tells Sean about the virus on the Aruna. And, and obviously we're wondering, how did she survive? And, and she put herself into a medical coma, which, okay, I, I believe that. That's believable enough. Well, and also they are saying that it's, very unlikely that she would have been found drifting in space. Right. And the fact that she was found after only 23 months is a miracle. And I'm quoting there. Yes. <laughs> so it was definitely not something that the French team should have been able to discover. You mean the frickin' French? The frickin' French. <laughs> Rescued just in time by the frickin' French. Yeah, yeah that, that was the first of many funny moments that between the two of them, but... Yeah, they had the sort of beginnings of a relationship. She drunk kissed him once at some kind of office party, I guess. And he spent eight months kind of chasing that moment. And I guess there's a certain sense that because these astronauts are kind of solitary people, that they don't necessarily have the best social skills in the world. Yeah. But <laughs> I like how Sean says, I'm glad to know that I'm not very good at it. Uh, and she says, wait a minute. So I'm adrift for 23 months and it's all about you. 
And Sean just does that. Exactly. And I'd like to be alone now. So yeah. I mean, just the banter is so cool. Yeah. And you know what? I, if the show was going to go on to a second season, I, I wonder if anything would come out of this whole idea because they're really playing up the fact that these people have been alone and that's what they do. So I don't know. But the Seraphim's no longer in its predicted orbit. It's obviously off course, out of communication range. Sean finds out that it's likely... The power supply fried the antennas, and I don't know. It just seemed like that would be something that they would have a backup. Well, that's true, and and that actually, now that you mentioned that, that's an interesting point because what the offspring had Molly do set them off course. You think that would be enough to keep them out of communication, but to burn out the antennas again, on top of that, that might have been faux Katie's doing. Yeah. And then that, and then that line, we're more alone out here than any other humans in the universe. Or are we? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> but it's true. That's, that's, uh, it's such a dangerous moment. And, and they keep saying how, uh, there's a lot of bad things happening and, and they could be in real danger. So I think Sean and Katie are really doing the best they can, especially Sean. He's keeping cool under pressure. Right. Now you said keeping cool under pressure protocol tells him that they need to abandon ship via the escape pods to return to earth. Right. Yeah. And he needs to grab some spare oxygen generators, but he can't even get those. And here's another thing that's going wrong. The place, the shed, as he calls it, that where the oxygen generators are being stored is kind of shut off. He can't get to it because there's a fungus growing on the outside which we actually get to see from a vantage point while they have their little romantic moment. So what is this fungus and and we why have we not heard of it before? And does it originate from Katie reaching or did it actually start growing before that? Yeah, and I'm wondering if it has anything to do with the alien entity in and of itself is it somehow Yeah, like maybe it's arrived at the Seraphim on its way to Earth. Right. Now, obviously we're really kind of struggling to understand is this really Katie? Is this a vision of Katie or whatever? And then when she overhears Sean recording that message, and in fact, the, that he would have to sedate her because she doesn't really want to get back into a pod again. Yeah. We assume fakes anxiety. <laughs> okay. So you think it was fake anxiety. So you're, so you don't think Katie's alive at all? I don't know. Okay. It, it's tough to call because if she's not alive, then this version of Katie that it's created is the most realistic facsimile that it's made to date. I mean, the fake young Katie on the earth is nothing compared to this uh, fake Katie that it's made because it remembers everything about their relationship. It can joke with Sean. We can sense it having chemistry with Sean. So the question becomes, does she get taken over at the point where... Well, no, it can't be that either because the dead body of Katie is in the is in the Aruna pod. Right, right. He opens the cabinet, and there's so is her this a fake Katie the whole time? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sort of like back at at Molly and John's house when Molly's in the kitchen cleaning up, and then we realize we're not sure which Molly <laughs> which, is real. <laughs> That's right. So, I don't know because when, as soon as he starts recording that message, Sean does, and Katie opens her eyes, and they had this kind of like boom sa- sound effect you knew something was going to go wrong. Right. And sure enough, as he goes for the oxygen supplies in the Aruna, because there's some spares in there, of course he sees Katie's dead body stuffed inside a cabinet, or maybe she was, that's where she actually was putting herself in a medical coma. I'm not sure, but just long enough for him to get scared. And the other Katie, the fake Katie closes the hatch on him. Yep. And this is where it gets weird for me because here she's been so realistic this whole time. And now she turns into the insectoid alien that cocks its head to one side and says, it's okay. Just like Marcus did in the season premiere. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess perhaps they have to learn. And and like we talked about at the beginning, it was just repeating the last word that the other person said as it was developing its vocabulary, I guess. Yeah, but why does she revert to that? Yeah, as her last little line. That's the end of the. That's the end of the episode, <laughs> right yeah. there. Yeah. Well, one of the things that obviously comes out clear as a bell is that Molly has now been tasked 
I don't think it's an overstatement to say the savior of mankind, at least mankind as we know it. And in many different ways. I mean, she has to solve the puzzle of how she set the seraphim off course, of course, but also the different things that she's being told by her own son. Well, then, and to also then to go into space and actually right. do it. Yeah. So, you know, so we see John and Molly talking out what happened. He, of course, doesn't understand why Molly thinks she'll be able to understand the motivations of the offspring. And there's a lot about her that parallels Sparks in that you're just accepting too much at face value. You're just too trusting. Yeah, we've been saying that all along, actually. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's not like us. It's a cold-blooded predator. And in a sense, John is our voice. Yes. And I don't know whether or not John sharing our skepticism is the correct thing and reinforces our skepticism or whether or not Molly is being vindicated by some of the interactions she has later with her offspring son. (laughs) Well, see, I still go back to what we said a few weeks ago, the question, and I forget which character even brought this up, but you're not its mother. You might've been the host. Right. That was Kern. No, no, it was Krieger, I think. Right, and she approaches it, yeah, probably was Krieger. She approaches it if if she's the mother, which would, you know, half of my DNA is your DNA, and uh, we don't have any evidence of that. And here she says it again to John. It's got to be partly like us, no? Right. No. <laughs> I'm in him. He came from me. But what does she have to prove that? Right, right. Just because it uh, was inside you like a baby is in the womb doesn't necessarily mean it went through that same genetic process of taking a little bit from column A and from column B. <laughs> right, right. Now, we, we talked a little bit about their conversation you know, when she tells him that she needs to go back into space. And, and look, his basic fear is not so much for her safety as much as the safety of their relationship. Yeah, their family relationship. Uh, he must have been having doubts all along throughout the time they've been married. But like he said... I guess he thought that she would eventually put it in her past. And even the trip that she originally made to the Seraphim for a year was probably somewhat a reaction to her feeling a bit distant from her marriage. Right. But, you know, at this point, look, obviously he's not afraid she's going to hook up with her ex-fiance. He's dead. But is he afraid that she'll never be able to let go psychologically and emotionally and that that's going to break up their relationship. And I think that's his biggest fear. Yeah, especially since he already had an uphill battle before she saw Marcus on the Seraphim. But once he finds out that he's she, she's seeing visions of him and now has perhaps a baby with him, I mean, he just is like, well, come on, what's a guy to do? <laughs> he almost has to give up at that point. Right, I mean, she's down the rabbit hole. Yep, and, yep. And uh, there's no coming back, apparently. And Molly says, well, isn't there someone that you would give anything to see again? But he gives her that last dig. Yeah, you. Yeah, and (laughs) again, how perfect. Yeah, yeah, great, great dialogue writing. Yep. Now, I think it'd be an understatement to say we didn't have any reveals in this episode. (laughs) So obviously the first reveal, and and you know, in retrospect, I love the fact that they drew out us getting to actually see the offspring. Yeah, it was a nice... And then they tantalized us with it a little bit last episode, so yeah. Yeah. So we think Molly's followed John into the bedroom to apologize and mend their relationship. We see Ethan looking into the bedroom, and we've seen this kind of a scene before, right? He sees John talking to and hugging no one. Yep, very reminiscent of Molly on the Seraphim kissing nothing on the video footage. (laughs) Right. Now, I'm not sure how I felt about the fact that we were shown the circles on his neck. It's almost as if we're not sure you get it. So we'll put the (laughs) circles there. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So now are we to believe that because later the uh, offspring is shown to be outside their house, that he's somehow reaching in and influencing things at this point? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Because otherwise, why would it happen to them now? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, then, okay, as if that wasn't enough, Then we see the real Molly look outside. She sees the offspring who appears, and I'm I'm never good about 
assigning ages to children. So I'm going to say nine or 10. You've probably got a better. No, I like that. Okay. I think that's about right. Yeah. And he's looking in, followed her to her home. And, you know, I mentioned this to you the other day at work uh, for any of our listeners that were familiar with Stargate SG-1 and the Gauld, who were a race <laughs> of sentient parasitic beings that took over the host. In fact, they needed the host. And then we would have the glowing eyes because the glowing eyes are unmistakable. Uh, the fact that these sentient beings need a human host. Now, although I say they need a human host, we don't necessarily know that they need it. Although the implication later on is that they're hungry. Yeah. So yeah. Do they need it for, for sustenance? Right. But I think, you know, the idea that these, these beings are parasitic, uh, I think that's a fair assumption to make. But yeah, the, it was very gold like those eyes. I mean, even the movie Stargate had that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but then, oh my gosh, Ethan sees the offspring. Gina, lock the door. And then I'm not sure what he threw through the plate glass window. It was a piece of that toy that he was balancing, the little magnetic oh, toy. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> Why did he do that, though? It's it's a very interesting reaction from Ethan that he would have, uh, his gut reaction would be to throw that thing to make it go away. Because yeah. he doesn't know the story. He doesn't know the background. He's seen the circles. Granted, he knows about the circles because he saw them on Molly. He was one of the first people to see the circles in the series. But why would he be scared of a, of a child standing outside the house, even though it's at night right now? Is he scared or is he protective? You know, we've talked all through this series about whether or not these two storylines were going to converge. Uh -huh. And I mean, is there something that he senses that, that his machine like capabilities allow him to pick up on that, Everybody else doesn't. I, I don't know. I mean, the offspring certainly knows that he's different. Yeah. I, I almost feel like Ethan was present in order to give the story a chance for the offspring to see Ethan and notice who's the other boy. He's, he's different than you, mommy. Yeah. And how about her reaction? Because all along we've been talking about her, her difficulty truly bonding. And, and as we've said, as the show has progressed, it's gotten better that she really has bonded more. And right, right here, this is the perfect opportunity. You just said, you know, he's not like you. and He's my son, just like you are. Yeah. Not he's my son and he's a machine, but he's my son. Right. As for someone who was so skeptical about it at the beginning of the series, she really has made those lines not blurred at all. She's, she's made it very definitive that she feels that he's just as much of a son as the offspring is. And who's to say that's not true because both of those have a sort of a grain of untruth to them. Right. <laughs> now he starts again, he starts explaining a few things. He tells her, I did what they wanted. Yeah. That's where I'm wondering if he, is he referring to the Sparks family right, <laughs> or the, his fellow aliens? Right. And then it gets creepy. He's afraid of the ones without blood, the ones without bodies like me before the blood be here soon. I mean, when he first started the ones without blood, I started thinking maybe he meant machines like Ethan, although to say like Ethan, Ethan's one of a kind. Well, that's true. But the very fact that he was cut by some glass, uh, by what Ethan did when he shattered the window there with that toy, and he sh is showing Molly the fact that he's been cut, which not only elicits sympathy from Molly, but also gives us a context for what he's saying. The ones without blood are unlike him. Right. Which could mean some aliens who don't have that human mix. And so then it becomes a case of Molly might be right about what she was saying to John, that there's a part of her in him and whether or not that's going to end up working in her favor or even the offspring's favor. Cause I got the sense that the offspring was taking itself out of the fight at the end of this episode. Right. And, and at the least, was siding with Molly, was was looking to Molly for comfort. I mean, in the way that a human child would. Yeah, yeah, to, to a great extent. So when he walks away because of mentioning that, you know, they're going to be here soon, she tries to follow and is immediately transported to a scene with her father 
which she does not trust even at the very start of it. She right. wants this not to be how she is interacting with the offspring. And now that she knows that he's doing it, she refuses to confront her father as her actual father, even though he's, he's throwing metaphors her way by saying, Oh, you're, we're going fishing and you caught the big one and let it get away. And I'm sitting there going, Hmm, what does that mean metaphorically? (laughs) Right, right. And at this point, I guess the offspring, and I I wish we had a name. We, I, I, (laughs) yeah. Marcus Jr. How about that? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I, I think he still thinks he's doing something positive for Molly, allowing her to see her father, right? Because nothing else comes out of that scene. That's right. Exactly. It's, it's like he's trying to communicate through her father because once he realizes that she's not buying it, Quinn starts actually saying the words of the offspring by saying, they're coming, they're coming, baby girl. You can't stop them. Right. They're, they're real hungry and there's lots and lots of them. Yeah. So <laughs> now she's back in the kitchen cleaning again, but not, <laughs> but is she? Yeah. She, they, the offspring put her right back where she was when she first encountered him, but even that's an illusion. Right. So like we've said, you know, she at least is fighting the illusions, knows they're not real and, and is, is speaking out against them. But I want to talk to you, meaning the offspring who then shows himself and, you know, she tells him, look, I don't want to see those people anymore. Right. I don't want to see the dead people. Yeah. Poor Marcus. He only got like two seconds. <laughs> well, although, I guess to be fair, her father's still alive, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That, actually, that's a good point. Have, have we seen too many alive people in these visions? Yeah. I don't think we have. Well, she asks him if he can stop them and tells her that they're too strong and he has to do what they say. So now I guess the question comes up, are there two alien races at play here? The big question that I have when he says they're too strong and he has to do what they say is that then why did they create him? Why did they have Marcus impregnate Molly to begin with? So is he going to be their instrument or... Is he rebelling against them because of his human nature, his human part of him, and they didn't anticipate that he would feel that way? Yeah. So, uh, uh, like I said, he might be taking himself out of the fight altogether, but that actually might be a good thing if the aliens were thinking of using him as some sort of instrument of humanity's destruction. Right. Now, he tells her that, that they need the humans to survive. He can't stay that she's the only one to stop them. But is it, you know, again, are we back to the Gaul type situation where they need the human hosts? I, I guess we don't know, but, you know. Well, I like that you bring up the Gaul again, because that's the scene where not only do, do we get to see the glowing eyes, but it's close up enough that now you can see the circle pattern glowing on his skin, right, on, on the bridge of his nose and on his cheeks. I thought that was a really, really cool effect. Yeah, because that was really the first time you really got to see it. Yeah, up close. But why, why is Molly considered to be the only one that can stop them? What does she have that no one else has? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, obviously she was not the only one to be impregnated. Well, I mean, I guess I'm assuming that Katie was impregnated, but maybe that wasn't successful. So maybe there's something special about Molly that, that uh, is going to help pull this out at the very end. Yeah. I guess we'll, guess we'll have to w- wait and see to the next episode. Yeah. Now the last storyline, and, and again, uh, as I've said during the podcast, it's one of my favorite story arcs in the show. And that's the, deal with Odin and his anti-technology terrorist group. And we saw last week he implanted a bomb into Ethan. And all over the course of the last few episodes, he's been trying to bond with Ethan and pull him away from his parents. And he's been doing an outstanding job. Yeah, because everything that he says to Ethan is true. Yes. To a certain extent that... His parents don't see him as part of the family. Uh, Last week, they said something about the fact that um, they're worried that he's learning too fast. That's all true. Yes, yes. Now, 
the thing about his parents wanting to shut him down, I don't think we've really ever heard John say that or Molly. Yeah, that's, that's the only lie in the, in the whole group, I guess. Right. And, and he says, my parents would never shut me down. And I think he understands that. Now, maybe he understands it really from more from an intellectual standpoint, from having been in the lab so often, from being used to diagnostic testing and, you know, maybe somewhere along the line that, that the, the topic of a shutdown was brought up and they decided that, well, no, we, we don't want to. Do, I mean, that would be an extreme situation. But at the same time, the very person who is warning him about a shutdown is the, the also the person who shut him down for 90 minutes. It bothers me a little bit that Ethan was not bothered by him taking out both of his batteries. Now, apparently he went into some tor- type of interlude mode. Right. So I don't know if maybe there's something more extensive to actually shutting him down that Ethan knows and we don't. But um, yeah, I guess Ode makes a convincing case, except for the fact that it's never been questioned why Ethan is missing 90 minutes. Right. I mean, by Ethan himself anyway. Right. Now, what about the hug? (laughs) Yeah. Ethan is just enjoying having sort of a big brother or a fun uncle. (laughs) Yeah. But so, but why does Odin tell him, you know, no hugs, soldier salute? I mean, is he, has he actually bonded with this child a little bit? I mean, is this maybe not what he bargained for as he got to know Ethan? On the one hand, that could be true, but maybe he's pushing him away. He doesn't want hugs because he's repulsed. Yeah. Okay. Good point. (laughs) Yeah. And then again, I mean, is this all a byproduct of having lost his arm in the war? Yeah. We're going to have to just go with the single-mindedness of the terrorist mind. Right. Now, uh, Ethan overhears his parents talking about the offspring, and, and I guess after this uh, perpetual bombardment from Odin assumes they're talking about him. And and you could kind of understand why he might interpret it that way, even without Odin's. Yeah. And so now he's on heightened alert. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> now, I'm not sure why, you know, maybe the, those readouts that Charlie was checking, maybe that was routine. But I, I think any of us, of course, you and I probably looked at that screen and thought, oh, audio files. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought of. Like, right. that looks just like my podcast edit. <laughs> right. Hey, what happened to that section there? You got to cl- close that up there. It's going to be silence. He, well, he even highlighted it, like what you do when you're trying to get rid of some, some noise in your, in your audio. See, now we're, now we're being podcast nerds here. But Right. He even says that, look, I know you like the guy, but if I'm watching a one-of-a-kind sentient android, I might mention it if I let him run out of power for 90 minutes. <laughs> Good point, Charlie. <laughs> yeah. And, and to her credit, she jumps into action. Yeah. She's skeptical at first, but once, once he says that she's like, okay, I'll look into it. Right now we've seen Ethan kind of acting like a petulant child on more than one occasion. And, and certainly he does it with John in the car. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In the car. And, and uh, Ethan still thinks he's at fault for any problems that John and Molly are having with each other. Yeah. But you know, John is not doing a good job of masking his frustration with no. Molly while the child is in the car. Yeah. And so it comes across as I'm mad at you and he's rolling his eyes and, you know, just not dealing with Ethan asking questions. And he just says, can you just be quiet? <laughs> <laughs> right. But he, but he even says, uh, I don't understand your mother sometimes or, you know, something yeah. along those lines. But, but just one more thing for Ethan to start being more paranoid. And of course, because Odin has given him this little device that he says is a military phone. And I'll tell you, if you didn't have suspicions as soon as you saw the green, red, yellow, and white buttons or whatever it was, then you need to watch some more action movies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because that looked like no phone I have. I thought, okay, the green button is call Odin, but what are all those other buttons for? (laughs) Yeah, right. Now, you know, he's in the lab and Charlie wants to run, uh, it's not a diag, I I guess it is systems check or system check, but he's got to wear the doofus cap. (laughs) (laughs) And Ethan's like, I'm not having your jokes today, Charlie. (laughs) Well, he was really, you know, really in distress because I guess he's Again, they want to shut you down. They want to shut you down. And, and that's probably what he's thinking at this point. Julie uh, jumps in and tries to calm him down a little bit. And, you know, I know what you're trying to do. And, and she gets it out of him. 
that it was Odin that's putting these ideas in his head. And, and now, you know, she really jumps into action. Well, if she hadn't said and identified with him by saying, you know, I'm half motors and half muscles. Yeah. If you can love something, then you can be loved. That's how it works. And obviously Ethan bought it because he had his finger on the trigger. Right. And when she says that he backs off and, Thank goodness, because that's as close as he ever got. And I think from then on, he starts a slow progression away from Odin's brainwashing. Yeah. And, you know, she has her friend do the search. Nothing comes up under that name. But, you know, the next thing you know, she's reading a newspaper article where he's been arrested in a uh, a terrorist plot that's anti-technology group and... You know, and his name is Gavin Hutchinson, right. not, not Odin James. <laughs> right. So next thing, she goes to his apartment. And I guess this is a message that's recorded to be played after the bobbing, right? Yeah, which is kind of silly if you think about it. That's got timestamps all over it. And and who knows if he necessarily got the details right in his video, if he says all the, the things that he assumes are going to happen. I mean, obviously, he lined up Ethan to blow himself up in the lab. Right. And I guess he wanted to pass it off as an angry AI taking revenge on its creators of its own accord when they decided to shut him down. Right. And they, he even uses the word or words wise decision. Yeah. As though he's saying that because of something that they did, this machine uh, made its own decisions to do something evil. And so we can't trust machines. Right. And then uh, I guess the last scene we see, you know, in this storyline, Julie goes to John and finds John. And I don't know, I just call it a waking sleep. And, uh, you know, he comes out of it. And next thing you know, uh, Ethan's riding his bike and, and Julie orders him to get in. Yeah. And that's the last we get too. So it's, it's a big question as to whether or not that's going to be enough because, he still has that bomb attached to his spine. <laughs> right. So even though he might not have the detonator, it doesn't mean they're out of trouble. Right. So I guess the question would be is, are they going to find it? Are they going to find it in time? Yeah. I, I mean, knowing there's more than likely only one episode left for this show. Mm-hmm. I mean, the possibilities are endless. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, we've got like several que- I mean, we got a lot of questions, but, uh, you know, some of those we talked about in the course of tonight's podcast but uh, for me the idea that there may be more than one alien race at play here is is just fascinating yeah well that's something that is brought up by the fungus which seems new first of all yeah um you know what's meant by before the blood and and you know who's going to be here soon yeah is it going to be like yellow goo raining down. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only thing I can picture because it is funny how we didn't have any Yasumoto in this one. So the yellow goo, I always tie in with the aliens, but maybe the fungus is more of a indicator. Yeah. Uh, um, Ethan's reaction when he sees the offspring and, and throws the toy at the window, does he inherently sense its danger or, uh, you know, is it something else? And also what can we read into the reaction that the offspring has upon seeing Ethan, right? That, that he's different somehow. Right. Now let's assume that Molly does go up to the Seraphim and stops them Uh from coming. That still leaves the offspring on earth. Well, that's what's so weird. She agrees to, to go up in space. She actually talks to John and says, I have to go. But when she's hugging him, he disappears. So that's why I keep saying, I think the offspring almost bowed out at that point. Will we even see him again, is my question. Yeah. I, I, I hope we do. <laughs> I just don't know in what context, if if he's saying that she's the only one that can do it. We'll have to wait and see. And and like you said, it almost feels like there's too much to fit into a final episode. And what of the elements we were talking about is going to be left hanging and which ones will be wrapped up in a nice little bow. Right. But I guess the nice thing is that I think we science fiction fans we're we're okay with open-ended endings. That's true. That's true. You can leave some things to the imagination. Yes. But we have some things that we'd like to nail down for the finale. So let's go ahead and get into our predictions for episode 13. (laughs) 
you want to go first? I'll go first. Yeah, sure. I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> My prediction is dealing with Odin's plot line. It's definitely a favorite of mine, just like you were mentioning it. You like that one. First of all, it bothered me a little bit that Julie was able to dupe the landlady so easily. Oh, I just left my phone. And by the way, can I go to the bathroom and let myself out later? <laughs> it's like, that's not exactly standard operating procedure for a landlady. But I think Odin is going to come back to his apartment, find out that someone has been in there watching his little video and that he has a backup detonator. And he's going to have to try to do a plan B, maybe not in the lab, but he is going to come after them with another way of blowing up Ethan. And it's going to impede the whole plan, not just blowing up Ethan and the anti-tech thing that Odin has in mind, but also the whole plan that, you know, deals with the aliens and the offspring and Molly and all that. Okay. So... Don't know how, what form that's going to take, but I'm pretty sure that's what Odin's going to be doing. Do you think that's a softball? I almost feel uh, like that oh, might no, be a little no. easy. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I, I like that a lot. And and my prediction is, is in the same area. And I'm sitting here thinking how I could kind of add into mine what you just said about yours. But But mine is that I think in the end, Ethan is going to knowingly detonate himself. Oh, sacrifice. Well, to the the recognition that, you know, whether he thinks Odin is right, whether he th thinks this is the only way to save humanity from these aliens, but that he is going to blow himself up. Even like like you said, you know, your prediction that that Odin's going to have to have a backup plan and you know that Odin's there and you know, maybe some they, they wrestle Odin to the ground, they get it away from him and they think they're safe. But Ethan still has his detonator. Oh, I like that. Well, especially since uh, we've been talking all along that one of the possibilities would be that Ethan would be the instrument of the alien's defeat mm -hmm. because he's the only one that is immune to its effects. Right. But he's also the only one that has a bomb in himself that, <laughs> that can blow it up. <laughs> right. So I think that's what it's going to be. All right. I like that. Maybe it will be a combination of the two. <laughs> But we have some theories from our regular contributors in our Dark Matter Chatter segment. And I just want to take this opportunity to thank uh, Gezis and Christopher and Alex from the UK and all of the people who write in time and time again because uh, they really flesh out our podcast very nicely with their ideas and, and some of you guys have written each and every week. So let's start with Gezis. He says, incredible episode this week. Once again, confirming your penultimate episode rule. <laughs> that's right. We always say that's one of the best ones. We saw major advancements on two main plot threads. Now we know where things stand, but answers as to what will happen are still out of reach. Here are my thoughts about the episode. Firstly, it was nice that the writers acknowledged that Molly's access code was not authorized to move Seraphim. And they came up with a clever way around it. I agree there, Gezis. But there's still a question. Why use Molly for that while the offspring has Sparks? Sparks, as director, probably had access to the station's propulsion, and there would be no need for this trickery. Maybe a deliberate course correction would raise too many flags, and it is harder to consider the fact that the Seraphim is on a collision course with Earth. Yeah, I think that's what it is, Gezis, is if Sparks did it, it would raise too many flags. Don't you agree, Dave? I, I do, although I'm still thinking about the fact that they said you can't move it remotely, although maybe that's not considered remotely. Well, but, but Sparks could just as easily have sent the meteor warning up. Oh, true. I see what you're saying. Right. right but, right. but yeah, that, that it, it's probably just because if Sparks did it, it would raise too many flags, but who knows? I, I think that's a very valid question and nitpick there, Gezis. <laughs> and then he says, there are the aliens. It is possible that their original form is fungus and they are catching a ride to Earth on a hull of seraphim. They, together, create a hive mind. Meanwhile, the offspring is half-human and therefore able to perceive himself as an individual and to refuse hive orders to some extent. Maybe distance helps, but we do not know how they are communicating. On the other hand, we have alien Katie. At first glance, she obeys the hive completely, but she does not feed on Sean Glass. 
Seraphim is hijacked and he does not serve any purpose at this point. She closes him in the shuttle, which is probably the safest place on the station. Sean can escape while she will burn with the station in Earth's orbit. That's that's a good point. The fact that uh, Sean could use the escape pod as it's intended. (laughs) But he says, I agree. It is hard to read Alien Katie's character, but I want to root for something human inside her. Also, if this story continues, it could take it to interesting places. For example, she has real Katie's memories, but lacks the framework for what it means to be human. Lastly, I am sensing a parallel between Ethan and the offspring. Both have an evil which is trying to tempt them. Ethan has Odin, or rather Gavin, and the offspring has his fellow aliens or their hive mind. I like that. Yeah, there's a, there's a definite parallel there. Yeah. You know, sitting here thinking as you were reading that and and the mention that if we get more of this show about there's so many interesting possibilities and, and you know, so many of these genre shows that get canceled by their original network and we talk about, oh, could they be picked up by another network or resurrected? And I think the problem here is we know because Halle Berry is the star it's really unlikely that anything like that could even happen. Yeah. Didn't you say that you read somewhere that she might even be signed on for a medical drama or something? I I did. And I couldn't verify it, which is why I didn't bring it up, but, but I did read it online. And I I mean, it certainly makes sense. So many film stars are gravitating toward television for a variety of reasons. I guess we'll see. Yep. All right. Now, Alex from UK says, It was great to see the entity this week at last. However, I do think that point could have been reached sooner. You know, and I agree, but now in retrospect, I'm okay with the way they did it. Yeah, I like it. (laughs) Uh, Apart from that, I'm seriously looking forward to next week. Some points. Will John be affected further since being manipulated by the entity? How will Julie handle Foden? Oh, I get it. I like Foden. It. Foden. Uh, see what I did there? Uh, that's that's Alex, not me. And lastly, I can't help but feel that Kern's line an episode or two ago about how someone locked in a box has a lot to say when they're released is more poignant than I first thought. These other beings are coming to Earth because they're hungry. But does that mean physically or the other type of hunger that the entity similarly displayed? That's right. Yeah. Now, one last thought. Wasn't it just the creepiest thing, the entity calling the others of his kind those without blood before the blood? I can't help but find a double meaning in that line. And and I'm sure you're right, Alex. I just don't know exactly what that double meaning is. Well, I think it was... When you mentioned Before the Blood as the episode title at the end of last episode, and I said, oh, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> it made it sound like before the the blood of that will be shed in the battle, oh. in the ensuing battle. So like this is the episode that's happening before everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Oh, you know what? I love that. <laughs> yeah. So it does have a double meaning. As bad as that sounds. <laughs> well, Christopher uh, has his thoughts on this episode as well. He says... I could talk about a thousand things here, but a few really jumped out at me. First, I get no prediction points. That is so not Katie, and no, it's not okay. (laughs) Yeah, I I think I had a prediction that fizzled as well this week. Holy dead bodies, I did not see that coming. Second, did John seriously go with the will not understand it because it's not like us stance with Molly? I hope the irony of that moment wasn't lost on anyone. I wanted to step into the screen and tell him, hello, John, Ethan isn't like you either. (laughs) But that moment might have said just how far Molly has come in accepting Ethan and how far John still has to go. Yeah, but, you know, I I think in defense of John, (laughs) um, he created Ethan with a human sensibility. Yeah. And the aliens are clearly not human and, and it's almost to try to understand them how can we possibly do that i mean they could be so far removed from anything we know so i mean i get what he's saying but and i, I don't usually like to cut john any slack here but <laughs> yeah that's right yeah ethan was programmed by humans the the offspring is not programmed by human dna i think the way molly thinks or maybe it is you know what do we know uh but then Christopher goes on to say, Julie certainly seemed to zero in on it instantly in the lab. We're all machines, she said. I'm half motors and half muscles. Who cares what we are? If you can love something, then you can be loved. 
I think that's the central point of this entire journey. Family is defined by those we love and who love us. All else doesn't matter. I am glad Julie finally started to see something meaningful at just the right moment, since she's been blinded far too long by the charms of all-father Gavin, who has now made Ethan into a drone. No irony there either. (laughs) Finally, the jury is still out on who is good or bad here. The offspring said it did what they wanted, but the longer I thought about that, the more I wondered if he meant the humans that captured him or the aliens from afar. That's the same question we had. He seems to be fleeing, and he's manipulating the humans to stop the others from space from coming down. But is he running because he's good and the others are bad? Or is he running because he's evil and the others are trying to recapture an escapee? Oh, very interesting. He clearly doesn't want them to come down, so it seems it's one or the other. Prediction. I should say I have no clue, I really don't, but my hunch is that the others in space that we are told are so very hungry are the good guys. Now that would be an awesome <laughs> twist. I Wouldn't love it that. be? Yeah. They are trying to recapture one of their own that has escaped and done harm. I'll be honest and say I could be completely wrong, yeah. But that's going out on a limb, Christopher, but I think it's definitely a, a twist that would just blow everyone away. Uh, he says... But right now, that's my gut feeling. I also think that Ethan will survive and he will choose to save his family by being the one to stop the offspring from truly escaping. After all, he does have an explosive device handy. (laughs) All right. That's just like your prediction. (laughs) I guess that's it. We have run dry of Dark Matter Chatter. But that's it for this edition of the Dark Matter Extant Podcast. Keep up with show news and fan interaction on Twitter by following us at Dark Matter GSM. And don't forget about our S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast. That's at S.H.I.E.L.D. underscore GSM. And other Golden Spiral Media podcasts can be followed by following GSM podcasts. Mike and I will be back next week with our discussion of episode 13, the season finale of Extant, entitled Ascension. But in the meantime, head on over to goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback to share your thoughts. You can write a message, record a comment using your computer's microphone, or call 304-837-2278. And that's Ascension, not to be confused with the six-part miniseries on sci-fi of the same name. And who stars in that? Uh, My friend Trisha Helfer. (laughs) And if you've enjoyed this episode of Dark Matter, please consider rating and reviewing us in iTunes. And we'll talk to you next weekend.